Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23? 1 Samuel chapter 23. I was a... um, I was a teenager, and I wanted to learn more about the Bible. And uh, there was a man in our church that was, um, well, I don't even know if he had a whole lot of theological background, but he knew the Word. And so I, I scheduled a meeting with him. He, uh, my friend and I went, and we sat down with him, and we said, we want to be discipled by you. We want to learn the Word. And this man was the type of guy that memorized Scripture. Um, by that time, he had already memorized Isaiah and Romans. I mean, huge books of the Bible. So, so we knew that when we made an appointment with this guy that he was going to say that we need to be people of the Word, memorizing the Word. I wanted to sit down with that kind of guy. I wanted to figure out how in the world do you memorize a book like Romans or Isaiah. And so what he said was this. He said that what we should do is not just memorize verses of Scripture, He said, I want you to try to memorize content, you know, sections of Scripture. So he got us thinking about not just verses, but sections of Scripture. And then he said, I want you to think about chapters, because chapters are important. And then he said, I don't want you just to think about chapters. I want you to think about the book itself. That seemed daunting to me. And he said, James, I want you to consider the book of what? James. So he he said, uh, I want you to consider memorizing the book of James. Well, I took the challenge. And so um, I started breaking that down verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and it was the first book that God had committed, uh, allowed me to commit to memory. Um, If you're familiar with the book of James, it begins with this. It says, consider it pure joy. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work that, may, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously with all, without finding fault, and it will be given to him. And let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. But don't let that person expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. And do you hear it? James was writing that letter to a, a number of Christians that are under great persecution. And in that persecution, what he is saying is this. I want you to know that as you go through the trials and the test, that God wants to use those tests and trials to grow your faith to grow your trust in him, that God is there to give you wisdom. God is there to give you insight. God is there through the trial. But a little bit later on in James, it says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. And when the lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And what James was saying is this, that there are situations that come into your life that if you are trusting in yourself, they will become a temptation, that you'll be trusting in your own thoughts, and your own thoughts are going to drag away your emotions. Your emotions are going to influence the way you act. 
What was life-giving to me was this, as I got a chance to memorize that section, is this, that every situation that you encounter in life, every situation that comes at you, every person, every conflict, every struggle that you deal with is either a test to deepen your faith or a temptation to hinder it. You choose. That was life-giving to me. Because what it told me was this, that it doesn't matter what comes at me. It is what I am grounding on in my heart and my life. It led me to three principles I want you to consider. Because if you forget anything else, I want you to consider these three principles. The first principle is this, that I need to acknowledge the ultimate authority of the word of God in my life. I must acknowledge the ultimate authority of the word of God in my life. You've heard me say it over and over again. You must know this book. You must read it. You must study it. You must memorize it. You must meditate on it because this is life. People have bled and died to give you this book. And many of us don't read it. And step number one is that I need to acknowledge the ultimate authority. It is our only rule for faith and conduct. But there's a second principle I want you to know. I need to assess or analyze all the situations in my life through the lens of God's word. I need to assess or analyze every situation that comes into my life through the lens of God's word. It's not enough to acknowledge that God's word is the ultimate authority. authority. That's knowledge. But I must get to a place where I look at my life and look at my life through the lens of God's word to be able to make right interpretations of life. Knowledge leads to understanding, but it doesn't stop there because the third principle is so important. You need to hear this. Acknowledge that God's word is the ultimate authority in your life. Second, you need to assess or analyze your life situation through the lens of God's word. But the third thing is so important. You need to apply the truths of God's word in your life. You must apply the truths of God's word. When the rubber meets the road and the struggles are coming and the conflicts are coming at you, you must apply it. That's wisdom. I think that as we turn to 1 Samuel, we'll see that David not only acknowledged the ultimate authority of the word of God in his life, David also assessed his situation, analyzed his life in light of God's word, but then he applied the truth of God's word even as struggles come. Would you look look to the Lord with me in prayer? So, Father, this is your word that we, we read from this morning. This is your word that we preach from this morning. This is your word that we hear this morning. Lord, I pray that the meditations of my heart are pleasing to you. I pray that the meditations of our heart corporately are pleasing to you. Father, help us to hear your word and acknowledge it's the ultimate authority in our lives. Help us to assess our lives in light of your word and then help us to apply these truths like David did. For the glory and honor of your name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
So in, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, last week I had an opportunity to talk to you from 1 Samuel 21 and 22, and David was in this desperation, right? You remember he was, he was going through this desperate and this flight of fear, and he had gotten to such a place in his life where he had forgotten God at places. He, you remember that he deceived that priest in his fear, and then he acted deranged before that king in his fear. And then he departed into a cave in the midst of his fear. And if you remember, I told you that oftentimes what we do in our fears is that we forget God, forget about his presence. And if you remember last week, I had the opportunity to tell you that God was speaking to him in each one of those circumstances. As David went into the tabernacle, he heard that God is with him. As he, as he looked at the showbread, the only bread in the town, it was the fact that God is your nourishment. God is the one that will feed you. Then you remember the sword. The only weapon in that town was the sword of who? The sword of Goliath. And it, it pointed him back to his greatest victory, that your victory doesn't come through a sword. Your victory came in the person of God. And then he goes into his, the pagan city of Gath, and he's thinking he's going to get away. And even there, what happens? God allows for those pagans to proclaim the name of God and the victory that David had seen. And then even as David was departing into the cave, you remember, you remember the city? The city was Adullam. And you remember what Adullam meant? Refuge. That God was speaking to him, speaking to him in the tabernacle, speaking to him in the, in the bread, speaking to him in the sword, speaking to him in the praise of non-believers, speaking to him in the cave, speaking to him as he speaks to us. Well, now David is on the run and he is running for his life because Saul will not stop. And we get to the beginning of chapter 23, and it says that David, now David was told that, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David did what? He inquired of the Lord. So David goes to God and asks God, what should I do? Our people are being hindered by the enemy, the Philistines. Um, what should I do? He goes to God. He wants to know whether he should be the one to go and protect this town. What's amazing is this. This is Saul's job to do, to protect Keilah. But what David is showing is that he is the real king here because he is protecting the people. So what David does is he goes to Keilah and goes to God and says, should we fight for Keilah, a fight against the Philistines? And God says, go, do it. So then David goes back to his men, and he says, God told us we need to fight. Well, his men, you remember those guys? These guys were the departed ones, the discouraged ones, the fearful ones. They're saying, I don't know about that. We're pretty safe in this cave. And David says, okay, you know what? I'm going to go back to the Lord again. So what does he do? He goes back to the Lord again. What does God say? Go. Go fight. And David and his men went up and fought those Philistines. And they won a great battle. We see in verse 5 that David and his men went to Keilah and fought the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. So what David is doing is he's acting like the king here. He is acting in a way that Saul should have been acting. He is fulfilling the protection of the people. Well, Saul 
hears that David has gone to Keilah. And what Saul thinks now in verse uh, 6 through 8, he says, I've got it now. Keilah is this walled city, and David has shut himself into this walled city. So Saul thinks, I've got him now. I'm going to kill him. He actually believes that God has given David into his hands. How deluded is Saul? He's not thinking about God at all except for his own benefit. Well, Saul seeks to attack David at Keilah. But then what we see in verses 9 through 15 is that David does what? He escapes again. Because what God is doing in his life is, I am going to protect you, David. I am with you. I will not leave you. So David knew, verse 9, that Saul was plotting to harm him. And he said to the priest, bring the ephod here. And, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant, has surely heard Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy it. And what, what he asked of God is this, are the people of Keilah going to betray me? God says, they're going to betray you. I just saved this town and now they're going to betray me. So David takes off and leaves and he escapes Saul again. And then what we see is this beautiful relationship between he and Jonathan. He's hiding now in the wilderness of Ziph, verse 15. And Jonathan, verse 16, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horash and strengthened his hand in God and said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. I entitled the sermon this morning, Learning to Love Your Friend and Your Foe. So this is the first part, loving to, learning to love your friend. Now, Jonathan is this, he should be the king after Saul. The way the world goes is that father is his father's king. If the father leaves the throne, Jonathan should be the rightful heir, but he is not the rightful heir because God has ordained that David is there. And Jonathan has been absolutely okay with this. He understands it. He has humbled himself. He has brought himself into friendship with David. I want you to see a couple of points that jump out at me in this section about Jonathan. The first thing is that this, I think Jonathan is telling us and telling David, he says, I want you to look to your father. I want you to look to God, that God is providentially in control. What does he say? My father will not, what? Find you. God had proclaimed that Jonathan was not going to be king. David was going to be king. God had proclaimed that in David being king, that meant that Saul could not kill him. And what Jonathan was reminding him is here is that as you go through the struggles, I need you to look to the Father. I need you to look to God. As the struggles happen in your life, look to the providential God who has promised that you will be king. As you go through your struggles, we have a tendency to look all around us for answers rather than looking upward to God. So the first thing that this friend did was as my friend is going through struggles, he encouraged him, look to your father. Look to the providential God who is in control. Know that what my dad is doing, my earthly dad is doing, he will not be able to do because the providence will not allow it. That's the first thing that the friend did. There was a second thing that I think this friend did is he says, not only look to the father, but I want you to look to your future. 
I want you to remember the promises. What did he say here? You will be what? King over Israel. Who had said that originally? God had said, you will be king. So David, I know you're running through your life, and I know you're fearful, and I know you're discouraged, but I need you to look to your father that he's the providential one. My father will not get you. And I need you to look to your future. You will be king. And as you look at the providence of God, and then you look at the promises of God, it will take you through the deepest waters and the deepest struggles of life. I wanted you to think about some promises that God has granted us. You know, what I do simply at times is sometimes I'll just grab an index card, right? And on an index card, I will write a verse on the front, and then on the back, I'll just put a reference. And sometimes I'll just carry these around and put them in my book, and they are ways that I can memorize things. When you're sitting and waiting, and, you know, all of a sudden I don't have know what I could do, then all of a sudden pulling out a verse card just to memorize promises. How about this promise I have on the card? The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Exodus fourteen fourteen. Or how about this, young people? Honor your father and mother, oh, so that you can have a long life on this earth. What a, yeah, I like that one, right? Or how about this one in Isaiah forty twenty nine? He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Or one of my favorites, if you come to my house or uh, come to my office, I've got eagles everywhere. He says, but he gives strength, right? He will give you the ability to mount up with wings like eagles. He will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not faint. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Or how about this one? We use this often in our family. Isaiah 41:10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be anxious, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. How about Isaiah 43, 2? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. How about this one in Isaiah, loving one? Oh, this one. No weapon formed against you will stand. James 1. If you lack wisdom, ask God, and he gives generously to all without finding fault. 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, you are what? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, see, you guys are good. How about if my people, Second Chronicles, I, I know this was to the nation of Israel, but we can use some of the principles today. If my people who are called by my name shall what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven. I will hear, forgive their sins. I will heal their land. Jonathan was able to pour promises into David to strengthen him and encourage him. He says, I want you to look to your father. God is providential. I want you to look to the future. God has already promised you will be king. You will be king. And I want you to look, thirdly, to our friendship. I'm a partner with you. It reminded me of Paul in Philippians. He says the partnership that the Philippians had, the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What a great friend Jonathan is. Jonathan is a friend 
who, as his friend is going through struggles, what Jonathan did was he found his friend. He went to him. He didn't wait for his friend to come to him. He went to his friend. And he called him to look to the Father. He called him to look to the future. And he called him to look to our friendship. Do you have that kind of friend in your life? We desperately need that. David is not only going to be betrayed by the um, Kelas, um, people in Kela, he's going to be betrayed by those in Ziphite, the Ziphites. He's getting betrayed by everyone. And I think part of the reason why God allowed him to be betrayed by so many people around him was that he wanted him to focus on the only one person that would never fail him. And who was that? God himself. So as everything is being stripped away, as we were talking about in um, Sunday school this morning, everyone, everything has been stripped away from his life. But the one thing that he's holding firm to is the fact that God has not left him. So the Ziphites are going to betray him. The people in Keilah are going to betray him. Saul is going to be persecuting him. But Jonathan is there, and the father is there with him. And we get to chapter 24, and this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning. David spares the life of Saul. It says in verse, chapter 24, verse 1, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. I should tell you this because I skipped over it. If you got a chance to read it um, this week, that the way that God had caused David to escape Saul in chapter 23 was he was now being pursued by Saul and he's now on one side of the mountain and Saul was on the other side of the mountain and all of a sudden, providentially, God causes the Philistines to fight against Israel and Saul has to abandon his search of David and go and fight the Philistines. Do you think that happened by mistake? That was the sovereign God allowing for circumstances to protect his anointed David. God, that same God, is in control of everything that happens around you and in you, and he wants to protect you. Okay. David spares Saul. So now he's in the wilderness of Engedi, and Saul took 3,000 men to get this one guy. Saul, don't you have anything else to do but chase all over the wilderness for David? The Philistines are robbing you blind, but you know what? You are going after David. He takes 3,000 men. Now, if you know, David only has how many? 600 men. Saul has got five times. He's got an elite force, you know, seals, Navy seals going after David to kill David. And David is just in and out, weaving and bobbing. He's safe. Verse 23, I mean, verse 2. Then Saul took 3,000 choice men of all of Israel and went out to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat rock. And he came to the sheepfold by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Okay, the call of nature came. I mean, what do you want me to do? I got to go to the bathroom, right? And they didn't have nice bathrooms like we have here. So Saul, the king, says, I'm not going to do this in front of my men. Saul goes and he says, I'm going to find some, oh, cave. 
in the wilderness of Engedi, there are these shale rocks, and there are a bunch of these caverns. So Saul goes into one of the caverns, and he drops his pants, and he's ready to do his business, and he thinks he's in privacy. But guess what? Who's hiding in the back of the cave? David is hiding in the back of the cave with his men. And they look and they say, can you believe this? Saul. And David's men say to David, God has given Saul into your hands to do with him whatever you would like. So what David does is he walks stealthily up. The guys are sitting there like drooling, like, oh, man, the war is over now. He's going to kill Saul. And David comes out with his blade. And David cuts off the edge of the robe, and he goes back. The guys must have been thinking, what in the world are you doing, David? You had a chance to kill him. God gave him into your hands to kill him. And David says, I cannot raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. David showed restraint. And David's restraint was there, but he says in verse 5, then David arose, stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe, verse 4, verse 5, and afterwards David's heart struck him because he had cut the corner of Saul's robe. His conscience was at him. Why? I didn't kill him. I didn't slit his throat. What did, what did I do? I just cut his robe. You know what the robe represented? The robe represented Saul's authority. And that David, even though he did not take Saul's life, he was so concerned that deep down in his heart that maybe there was anger and retaliation in his heart and that he was striking out against the Lord's anointed. This man has been trying to kill him upwards of how many times? Ten times, Pastor Tim? Ten times. He has been pursuing him. He has killed all the priests and Nob, including all of their families, and you're going to tell me that it is wrong to take this man's life? David said, yes. Why? Because he, remember, acknowledged the ultimate authority of the word of God. He analyzed his life situations through the lens of God's word. And then he applied the truth of God's word to his situation. I want you to see some of the ways that I think that David dealt with Saul. And I think that we need to deal with the foes in our lives. The step number one that I see is that he refused to retaliate. He refused to retaliate. His men are telling him, kill David. David is saying, I will not kill him. Why? He says it over and over again. Do you see it? The Lord's anointed, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's anointed. Twice in verse 6, once in verse 10, I will not lay my hand against the Lord's anointed. He refused to retaliate. Several weeks ago, you remember we were in Romans chapter 12. You remember that passage? Let love be sincere, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. But at the end of that, you remember said, it said, do not avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is mine to repay. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, what are you supposed to do? If your enemy is hungry, do what? Feed him. 
If he's thirsty, do what? Give him something to drink. David refused to retaliate. He didn't know that passage from Romans, but he did know the passages from the Old Testament that said, I am the one that will avenge you. In 1 Peter, Peter had said this to the the people that he was writing to, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. David was clearly suffering, but what he needed to do was to entrust himself to God and do the right thing. So step number one is this. He refused to retaliate. Step number two, he risked reconciliation. Now what he does is that the men tell him that you should kill him. David actually tears into his men and say, I'm not going to allow you to touch this anointed. He's standing between Saul and his men and saying, no, you're not going there. And then what David does amazingly is he walks out of the darkness of the cave. After Saul had finished his business and walked out of the cave, he walks out and he says, Father. He basically says, Father or Lord, Saul, my king. Verse 8. Afterwards, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And Saul turns around and looks. And David is down on the ground, prostrate before him humbling himself before this murderous guy. David is risking reconciliation. He refuses to retaliate, and he's risking the opportunity for reconciliation. Can you imagine what his men were probably thinking? David's lost his mind. I thought he was a warrior. He's not a warrior. He's a wimp. I can't believe he's going to expose us. He's exposing himself and us, all of the pressure that was coming at him, and even the pressure that was happening within him. David risked reconciliation. He went down there. He humbled himself before Saul. He honored him. He respected him. He opened the door for reconciliation. Step number one, if you're dealing with a foe, you need to refuse to retaliate. Step number two is you need to risk the possibility of reconciliation. Step number three is very hard. I got it. But this is so important when dealing with an enemy. You need to honor the position. Honor the position. Do you understand how he went out to Saul? He didn't say, you're a jerk! He didn't do that. He says, my lord, the king. We need to honor a position. I, I heard a pastor preach on this passage, and he, he was in the military, and he said this. They were taught in the military, this quote, and all my military people, I, I would hope you would agree with this. You do not salute the man, you salute the rank. You do not salute the man, you, don't, you salute the rank. And in essence, what he was saying is this, that the man may be the worst guy in the world, but you salute him Children, you may have parents in here that you struggle with. We're called to honor them. We're called to honor the employer that you're going to go work for tomorrow, even if you don't like them. We're called to honor leaders, even if you don't agree with them. We're called to honor the position. And what David did was, I'm going to refuse to retaliate. I am going to risk reconciliation, and I'm going to honor the position. Honor does so much for people. Honor is a really big deal to God because he made it one of his Ten Commandments. Because in essence, guess what? When we don't honor the human person, 
we are attacking the ultimate authority who put that human person in your life. So step number one, refuse to retaliate. Step number two, risk reconciliation. Step number three, honor the position. Step number four, which is also very important, make a reasoned appeal. Make a reasoned appeal. You ever notice that when you are in a conflict with somebody that you can get really emotional and you can use these incendiary, incendiary words? I mean, you always do this. You never do this. You ever use those kind of words with people? And then immediately what happens, walls go up, defenses go up, and then the attack is going. I see that in the counseling office oftentimes. And, and what would happen if you, instead of making that emotional or extreme appeal, you made a reasoned appeal? And what David does here is he does that. Look with me. He says, verse 8, And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes seen how the Lord gave you, providence, into my hands in the cave. And some of my men, some of them, told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, see my father, see the corner of your robe in your hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the ancients say, out of the wicked come wickedness. My hand shall not be against you. After whom have you come? Has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give a sentence between me and you and see it. And plead my cause and deliver me from your hands. Saul heard these words because David made a reasonable appeal. Did you hear it? You hear what he said? He says, the Lord gave me into your hands, but I refuse to harm you. You're the Lord's anointed. Let me give you some tangible evidence of my innocence. I've not sinned against you. I'll look to the Lord to judge me. I am no threat to you. I'm appealing to the Lord for, my ju- for his justice and my vindication. It's reasoned appeal. What would happen if we would turn those difficult relationships into a step of taking a reasoned appeal, not an emotional appeal and not an extreme appeal? There's a fifth principle that I see here that David did. David had a heart for forgiveness. David had a heart for forgiveness. Now, let's look what Saul does. Verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? He's probably reminiscing back to those days when David was with him. Maybe when Saul was having those panic attacks and David was playing the lyre for him. Or maybe he was thinking of the day that he gave his daughter into marriage to his son, the son. Or maybe he was thinking of the day when that little David who couldn't even wear my armor is now standing before Goliath in our nation. Maybe he's reminiscing my son. Short-lived, though. 
as it is with those who are not truly repented. And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. Not all weeping is godly weeping. Some people are remorseful because of the pain that they're going through, but it's really not about God and others, it's about themselves. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. I wish I had time to talk about that today. And then he says this. uh, He said to David, you are more righteous than I. This is my first sign that Saul is not repentant. You remember the young man, the tax collector Jesus talked about? Remember the, the Pharisee and the tax collector and they're praying? You remember the Pharisees over here saying, you know, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector, this jerk, this guy who does all these terrible things because I do all of these wonderful things for you. That's what the Pharisee was doing. And you remember what the tax collector did? He couldn't even look up. He says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. What does Saul say? Saul says, you're more righteous than I am. He should say, you're righteous and I'm not, but he doesn't. It's not real repentance here. For you've repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you've dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put you into my hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you surely shall be what? King. It's probably the first time it came out of Saul's mouth. David is going to be king. And the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. Now it's a sure sign that Saul once again is only thinking about himself. Swear to me. Before the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore to him. And that tells me that David had a heart for forgiveness. He started this whole thing off by saying, I'm not going to retaliate. He, he risked the possibility of reconciliation. He honored the position. He made a reasoned appeal And now he has a heart for forgiveness. Doesn't mean that there is complete and total forgiveness because it hasn't happened. Because Saul is not really repentant. But David's heart is there, I want to be able to forgive this guy. In Mark 11.25 it says this, So when you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, forgive them. So that when you're in your home and that person has never even repented, you should have a heart ready to forgive. But most of us, when we get wounded in spirit, we get so embittered and so angry and then stubborn and resentful and rebellious in our lives. But David says, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to leave this to you, God. I'm going to put this in your hands. Last couple before we end. David acted wisely. Look here with me in verse 22. And David swore to Saul, this to Saul, that I won't cut your family off. And then Saul went where? Where did he go? He went home. But where did David go? He didn't go home. He went back to the strongholds. Why? He knew he couldn't trust Saul. So just because I have a heart to forgive 
If the person is not repentant, I need to act wisely when this person is in habitual sin. And sometimes I need to cut this person off to protect others and myself. And David knew it. I desire forgiveness. If you came and were honest like this tax collector over here, I would wrap my arms around you, Saul, but I can't trust you. Because even in your statement to me, it is not about what you're going to do to stop attacking me or stop attacking God. It's still all about you, Saul. That leads me to the last point I want you to consider this morning. David knew he represented God. Yeah, he, he refused to retaliate. He risked reconciliation. He honored the position. He made a reasoned appeal. He had a heart for forgiveness. He also knew, he acted wisely, but he also knew that I'm representing God. That even as this enemy is coming at me, I am here to glorify God. I need to glorify God in the way I speak. I need to glorify God in the way I think. I need to glorify God in the way I act in this situation. It reminds me of this passage in 2 Peter. You don't have to turn there. Let me read it for you. It talks about submission to authorities. Hear this. Be subject to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it is the emperor that is supreme or the governors that have sent him to punish For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Likewise, as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as a servant of God. Honor, hear the word, everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only those good and gentle, but those who are also unjust. For this is the gracious thing, that when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it? You endure? But if you do good when suffering wrong, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him, his father, who judges justly. And then here's the gospel. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By by his wounds we are healed. For we were all straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our soul. See, Jonathan was able to encourage David to look to the Father, that God is providential. He was able to encourage David to look to your future. God has got a promise for you. He was able to say, look to our friendship. I'm in partnership with you. That's the friendship. And then he was able to counsel David through his word in dealing with this foe. Restrain evil. Don't attack. Risk reconciliation. Honor 
even the evil person that's around you. And then when you honor them, make a reasoned appeal before them, not an emotional one, not an extreme one. You have your heart ready, open for forgiveness. Act wisely. This morning, I I wonder, is there somebody in your life that you're struggling with right now? Maybe you desperately want a friend like Jonathan. I guess the question I'll ask you, are you a friend like Jonathan? I could want it, but I need to be it. And maybe there's an enemy in your life right now that's looking to attack you. Remember the counsel that James had given. Every circumstance that comes at you is either a test to grow your faith or a temptation to rob it. You choose based on what you base it on. Acknowledge that the word of God is your only authority. Analyze and assess your life through the word of God. And then apply the principles that are here in God's word, regardless of the circumstances. And let God be glorified. So, Lord, we praise you. We thank you, Lord, for your kind goodness. Father, sovereignty. You're in complete and total control of everything. I know the world seems crazy. But you have every hair numbered on our heads. You know, every circumstance that we ever go through, Father, help us to trust you. But Father, you're not only a a trusting God because you're sovereign, but you're a trusting God because you're good. You're a good, good Father. That's who you are. That's who you are. That even through these struggles, that you are bringing these struggles out for the glory of your name and the good of your people. So Lord, help us to trust and obey. Because what? There is no other way, Lord to be fulfilled in Jesus, but to trust and obey. If there's anyone here who doesn't trust your son, has never done so, Lord, I pray that you would break through their heart today, open their eyes to the gospel. And for the many of us that do trust you today, deepen our faith in you, that whatever trials we go through, help us to know that you've given us your word. We can analyze our lives through your word. We can apply the truths of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.